This podcast is for entertainment purposes only and should not be taken as medical advice. This episode contains swearing, discussions about race, racism, slavery, and antiquated ideas and language about black people and African Americans. Please be considerate of those around you when listening to this episode. Finally, this may not be suitable for children. Our skin is made up of several different layers that each serve a distinctive purpose while protecting us from our surrounding environment. Within the epidermis, our first layer of skin is a type of cell called melanocytes. They produce our pigmentation using melanin. Inside the melanocytes are structures called melanosomes, where chemical reactions create melanin by transforming the amino acid tyrosine. Our skin color is a, is a function of the type of melanin, the amount of melanin, and the number of melanosomes working together. Melanocytes use their tentacle-like extensions to transport melanosomes to other skin cells where they can congregate to form a cap or umbrella over the cell nucleus. This cap acts as a layer of armor against ultraviolet light from the sun. Why? Well, what's in the nucleus of every one of our cells? DNA. And UV light exposure can damage your DNA, causing genetic mutations and possibly cancer. This biologically ingenious defense against the sun would help our ancestors inhabiting regions along the equator to better survive and reproduce and eventually migrate across the globe. As humans settled in other parts of the world with less intense sunlight, over time different pigmentations appeared in the human population. And with that divergence of skin colors, a problem was seeded. Thousands of years of hatred between people because of a difference in the type and amount of melanin in our skin. Discrimination has always plagued us as a species, and sadly, probably always will even long after COVID is controlled. I think a great majority of people would agree that racism, specifically prejudice and discrimination based on skin color, and assumptions of what personality exists in that person based on their, on their skin color, is real. Racism exists. What we seem to dispute are the extent to and the magnitude of which racism exists, and in what forms. Racism is not endemic to one part of the world or one country. It is a global scorn on God's green earth. I'm saying this in the wake of George Floyd's murder by police here in Minneapolis, where, once again, we are having conversations about race relations in the United States, witnessing protesting and violent riots. The police are under an electron microscope right now, and other institutions are being questioned and evaluated regarding their explicit or complicit part in this problem. But we should always remember that what happened to George Floyd is disgusting and warrants tough conversations about race, policing, and a plethora of other issues now made worse by the pandemic, including healthcare disparities. In this episode, we are going to explore race in medicine. This is a huge topic with a lot of history, so to the best of my abilities, I've structured this episode in such a way where you guys can hear these stories, statistics, and facts and come away with your own conclusions. We acknowledge that this is a delicate topic with high emotions and many different conclusions people seem to draw from these facts. Healthcare practitioners are supposed to provide care to all people, no matter their individual characteristics, history, struggles, or beliefs. To help me unpack race in medicine, I'm joined by my awesome, amazing wife, Siona, CT The Head's first guest.
So, Siona, tell tell us a bit about yourself in terms of your um, experience in medicine and like as a patient and working in your dad's clinic. Okay. Uh, I'll start backwards. Okay. I had experience first in my dad's clinic. Sure. Um, so, I mean, I guess basically to start, um, my dad's a podiatrist, which is a foot doctor. Um, and so, you know, I worked in his clinic on and off throughout high school. So it was really just a summer job. Um, but I would do, you know, administrative work for him, um, which entailed calling patients, you know, to remind them of their upcoming appointments, um, checking patients in, blah, 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 those sort of things. Um, and, and that was just a very small portion of of, you know, the experiences I've had, um, as being a patient. Yeah. I mean, I've had quite a few experiences. I, you know, when I was younger, I had my tonsils removed. Um, and then as I, you know, got older, um, I haven't had too much except for, you know, being pregnant and that came with right. a ton of experience. <laughs> yeah. That I <laughs> hadn't, I really did not know what to expect with that. Um, but I would say overall I've, I've had good experiences with doctors, um, and nurses, you know, for the majority of the time. For the most part. Yeah. For the most part. Yeah. Yeah. Um, what was it like working for your dad? I mean, it wasn't a bad experience. It was just weird because he was my dad. And so I couldn't ever call him dad. It was always, you know, I had to be very professional. And when you're a kid in high school, um, I feel like it's kind Professionalism of Professionalism isn't uh, yeah. a key skill yet. Right. Yeah. yeah. You're, you're really developing and honing those skills. But it was a good experience. I mean, I learned a bit about, you know, coding and billing. Not that I was doing those skills, but I, I learned some of that. And then, you know, working with patients, um, you know, I guess really I gained more interpersonal communication skills um, because I had to be professional with these patients um, and learn how to talk to them and, and be sensitive to their needs. Right. And I mean, I did... Um, you sterilize my dad's tools, you know, when he was going to be performing in-house surgeries. So that was also interesting, you know, learning the different um, ways that the tools are cleaned um, and then watching him. Well, I wouldn't really watch him perform those um, surgeries, but, you know, I was there. So sure. Sure. Cool. So I have to, I have to, Specify, well, yeah, specify that, uh, Siona, you are Latina, you are Puerto Rican, and for those of you that don't know or haven't heard my other episodes, I'm I'm Brazilian, even though I sound as American as it gets. I mean, I was born in Brazil, but um, like I'm I'm pretty I'm pretty brown, and I mean you're 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 pretty fair skinned, um, but do you ever feel like you've do you ever feel like you've experienced um, any kind of like race-based discrimination in a healthcare setting or, or while, um, or as a patient, do you think you've ever witnessed any 
discrimination, uh, race-based discrimination in a healthcare setting? I can't say that I have um, for either of those questions. Um, I, I feel that typically... Uh, okay, so usually how those conversations, if they ever come up, are based on my name because people don't usually ever hear the name Siona. And so if they do, um, it, you know, I'll tell them where my name comes from and then they'll usually ask about my family and, um, you know, ethnicity and whatnot. And so then those conversations usually come up. And for the most part, I don't feel that people discriminate against me after finding out that I'm Latina um I do usually get those questions of how are you Hispanic if you're so white sort of a thing which yeah and that's a, that's is discrimination is discrimination but it's in a, in a sense but I don't feel that they use that information against me because I think that most people forget after I tell them since I'm so um fair-skinned and sure in terms of uh, seeing other people um, who've experienced the or racism, just or either or, yeah. either seeing or just like witnessing anything. Yeah, like that. I don't. I don't think I have. Um, yeah, just keep in mind we are only two people in yeah. a very large healthcare system. That right. doesn't mean that it happens across the hall from wherever we've stayed. Right, but. Like you're saying, you you haven't seen any anything like that, and I I personally haven't either. Right, and I was going to say that when you know when we were in the hospital with our daughter, um, there were you know we interacted with multiple families of of diverse backgrounds, and while they may have experienced something, we never personally discuss those um experiences that they had i never when interacting with other nurses i mean the majority of the nurses we did interact with were caucasian or appeared to be caucasian so i never experienced or saw them interacting differently with people of color um but at the same time you know we were all in our own rooms with our babies and then, you know, in labor and delivery, you obviously have your own room. You don't share that with anybody else. So it's kind of hard to see or, you know, really understand if those sort of things are happening. Um, yeah. Cause it, obviously for privacy reasons, we, you know, you can't be in uh, the room while somebody is having a conversation with their doctor. Right. right. So we don't know how those conversations are, exactly. are happening or, or occurring. Or, or, you know, we don't know the words or the tone that's being shared from physician yeah. to patient and patient to physician. And and we when, you know, our daughter was in the hospital, we had quite a few doctors that were um, different ethnicities. Yeah, that's true. We had like, I think, three different um, Indian doctors. Yeah, I think they were Indian. And. I think, I think that that's it. about it. I yeah. mean, some of them had very unusual. Oh, well, OK. Well, okay, that was the gynecologist or the OBGYN, so never mind. I mean, she was from Jordan, but she wasn't a uh, neonatologist. Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, except she was still from a diverse background. She, yeah, she, she was, was Jordanian. Yes. Yeah. yeah. But still, I mean, all those interactions were really great. I mean, we never, not that I experienced any sort of um, discrimination towards our daughter because, you know, when she was born, she was quite dark. Um, her skin tone was very dark. And part of that, too, is because... If when you're depending on how um, 
prematurely you are you are born or your child is born um, and what complications are occurring due to that. Um, like our, our daughter was jaundiced, yep, right? She, yeah, so she, she had, she had, she had a different, um, a, a bit of a darker, like, like Siona said, a bit of a darker complexion to her because she was jaundiced. Yep. She was very red. Yeah. Very red. Um, I believe, and somebody can correct me on this. I believe the jaundice is the buildup of a chemical, which is bilirubin, which is the same chemical that is that makes your poop brown. Yep. Yeah. That's my understanding of it, too. I don't remember what that. Oh, I said it. I said it already. Bilirubin. Yeah. That's the chemical. <laughs> so not everybody obviously has those experiences because there is a lot of evidence out there in terms of testimony and statistics that that african-american or or black patients in general as as a group experience way lower health care outcomes than uh, compared to whites and how this episode is going to work is i have a bunch of different articles from different um media outlets that we're just gonna we're just gonna read parts of them, and we'll go through some of the more specific medical stuff that or comes up in these articles, and then at the end there is some statistics and some other um, kind of background stuff about this issue, and what I what I hope is that you guys hear these these testimonies and the statistics and the and the background and wrestle with them in your mind and come to your to your own conclusions about why these things might be happening and what you would do to fix them so that all patients in our in our healthcare system in the United States can seek treatment and get equal outcome but also be treated well while they're um, seeking care for themselves. So the first, the first article that we have is from MPR News. That's M as in Minnesota. And the story we're going to read to you is about a patient, the, this couple named Asia and Solomon Parham. Now, we are going to leave the names of the hospitals in this article out. Um, but they will be, these will be available on all these, all these, all my sources will be available in the episode description. So um, for sure, um, if you, if you're so inclined, please uh, go, go on and uh, read some of these for yourselves if you'd like. So um, Siona, do you want to start from here? Yeah. Okay. Again, this is from, NPR, this is from NPR News, and this story was written by Catherine Rickert. Asia and Solomon Parham said they felt racially profiled when they came to a hospital in St. Paul three years ago as Asia was ready to give birth. The couple was prepared. They'd gone to birth classes and read about labor and delivery. Asia also created a birth plan with details such as lower lighting during labor, wearing her own nightgown, no medication unless necessary, and making sure Solomon was in the room if a cesarean section was needed. 
Asia, a professional singer, joked that the plan was a work of art. I felt really excited in tune with everything that was going on, and I was really excited, she recalled. On her due date, Asia arrived at a previously scheduled appointment with her provider only to learn that her water had broken. She was advised to head straight to the hospital. There, the Parham said they were treated disdainfully by staff who dismissed their requests and concerns. The Parhams felt racially stereotyping and discrimination were at work. Asia and Solomon offered their written permissions to the hospital to discuss their case with NPR News. The hospital declined, but in a statement said that its goal is to provide the best care and experience for every patient every time. Because her water had broken, the staff advised Asia she needed the drug Pitocin to induce labor to make sure the baby was born quickly. It's a measure many hospitals employ to avoid a life-threatening infection. Pitocin was something Asia had hoped to avoid, but nevertheless, she handed the intake nurse her birth plan. Asia said the nurse's response was, oh yeah, this isn't going to happen. Can I stop you there? Yep. <clears throat> okay, so there are some things that I want to unpack here. The the first being Pitocin. Um, Pitocin is the brand name for oxytocin, which is a chemical that is naturally produced in the in the brain specific specifically the hypothalamus um it's often referred to as the as the bonding chemical i believe and it's a it's a it's a very large um organic molecule and in the labor in and uh, delivery setting pitocin is typically administered intravenously like it says in the article to help induce labor so according to the FDA, oxytocin works by increasing the concentration of, of uh, uh, calcium or of a calcium ion, um, specifically the calcium 2 plus ion for you chem nerds out there. And the ion is needed for uh, muscle movement. Uh, calcium is a critical component of muscle movement. And of course, with muscle movement, that means that the uterus can contract. Now, Siona, why would why would somebody not want pitocin? Uh, so I mean, from my experience, it from what I've heard, um, you know, you really don't know how your body is going to react to it until it's been administered, right? Especially if it's the first time you've ever had pitocin. I'm guessing. If you've never had Pitocin and you are female of childbearing age, the first time you're going to have Pitocin is probably in a labor and delivery setting. Right. I don't, yeah, I don't really know where else Pitocin is used or if it's used in other settings. Um, and I, I couldn't, yeah, I couldn't find if that right. was, uh, what other, what other, um, yeah, what other settings Pitocin is used in. Okay. So what, so when, when somebody says the your the water has broken that that term that what that means is that the amniotic sac has ruptured right and yeah. so that's what's around the baby yes, keeping the baby safe in your in a woman's uterus so when it breaks and the labor isn't starting um as far as i understand that makes the baby more susceptible to um well, it exposes them to the outside, yeah. right? Yep. Yeah. And so that's it, that's not it's not good. Well, and as the article said to it, it increase it increases the risk of an infection. Right. 
Um, but what I guess like, do you know what is the what is the time frame for a vaginal birth after the water breaks to avoid a C-section? If you do, you know, I don't. That's okay. a really good question, though. I, I I guess like I was thinking that that probably depends on gestational age too. Right. So when when we say gestational age, we mean um, so a pregnancy is typically a forty weeks nine nine months or forty weeks. Um, term a term pregnancy is at least 30, 38. 38 yep okay I thought it was 38 36. to 40 is term and any yeah and then before 38 is considered like premature early yeah. mm-hmm. um i mean if if you can get a baby to 34 weeks they're in a, a good position yeah even though they're premature right because basically after a certain point in the third trimester they're just gaining weight. They've completely developed as they should in utero, and they're just gaining weight. So, Sienna, what do you make of this comment that this nurse said, oh, yeah, this isn't going to happen? Um, I mean, if somebody told me that after, you know, learning that I'm in labor, going to be having my baby that day, I would be, um, I think I would feel really sad and I would feel like I'm not being listened to. Yeah, I think and that's, not being yeah. heard. Like, and then also, you know, I don't know what the context of this conversation was, but explain to me why my request can't be made. Right. That's yeah. I think that's important. And it's such a this these labor and delivery situations are already so stressful yeah. for the mother for the mother that I think. Um, it just it comes off as very dismissive. Yeah, extremely. And dismissive. like as a nurse, uh, um, I don't know. I for for you nurses that for for you nurses that listen, um, I'd like to know what what you would say. Um, but I, I my inclination would be to take the birthing plan and look at it, and instead of saying, "Oh yeah, this isn't going to happen," maybe say, "Well, let's see what we can do about right. this. Let's see what we can do for you." Yeah. Um, at least because because every hospital should try to make their patients feel as comfortable as possible, and that for sure includes making your patients as, feel as comfortable and calm as possible in labor labor and delivery settings. It's, yeah, I mean when 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 you're becoming a parent for the first time, or even if it's not the first time, um, I can't speak for having multiple children, but the first time it's incredibly scary. Um, it's, you know, you, your anxiety is high, your stress is high because you don't know what to expect. You're hoping that you have what Hollywood portrays as a perfect delivery. Um, it doesn't happen and it doesn't happen. I mean, you you don't let the movies fool you into thinking that pregnancies are perfect. Okay. And I'm sorry, any women that wear heels, like kudos to you, but that's bullshit. My back started hurting within the first trimester. So I don't know how... Women can wear heels. That is just something that I I could never achieve uh, myself. So that's funny. <laughs> my my point is is that they the education uh, around pregnancies and how uh, births can play out is very low. Yeah, and I think that that's something that really needs to be addressed within the healthcare system for sure. So uh, um, I'll continue reading the article here. Uh, the underlying tone, said Solomon, felt like, well, you're black. 
And black people don't have birthing plans, so this isn't going to happen. Asia says a series of mistakes and miscommunications made by the nursing by the nurse administrating her her pitocin. Good lord, meant she missed a critical window critical window to deliver her baby vaginally and led to a cesarean section, something Asia wanted less, least of all. When uh, doctors decided to put her under general anesthesia for the C-section, Asia said she asked to see Solomon before going under so they could pray together, but she was told no. Asia said she was in tears and terrified she wouldn't wake up. Solomon argued his way into the room to see his son, uh, Asa, A, it's uh, spelled A-S-A, uh, who was born healthy. But as Asia held Asa in the recovery room, upset and crying because nothing had gone the way she hoped, she endured another emotional assault, she said. A nurse appeared saying Asia was more fortunate than another mother whose baby died right after Asa's was born. And basically that I shouldn't feel the way I felt because I had a baby and she didn't, Asia said. In my head, I shouldn't uh, be made to feel guilty because I had a traumatic experience as well. No, I did not lose my child, but I had a traumatic experience. Asia and Solomon eventually complained to the hospital administration about their experience, and the hospital decided not to charge the couple anything for Asa's birth. At Christmas, the, the Parhams said the hospital sent an additional letter of apology and $500 in gift cards. Wow. That makes me feel really upset to hear that a nurse told her that she was more fortunate. I understand. Like that is a terrible, terrible experience to have, to have your baby die right after birth. I mean, I haven't experienced that, but to be told that you're more fortunate and basically to get over it it's like i feel like that's kind of like teetering on a yeah, HIPAA violation right too. <laughs> i mean it's just like okay so she's already gone through a lot giving birth and at that having to go through a c-section which don't is what ever, she wasn't expecting don't ever judge your patient's emotions yeah i mean no matter what situation they're in they are feeling it in that moment they're feeling those emotions bra um and and they're they're learning how to process those things as they're happening. Yeah. So disregarding the fact that her her baby made it, she made it through the the surgery is not that's never okay. Yeah, elephant in the room is that this what this nurse said to Asia I I just is hands down it completely inappropriate. Yeah. Should not have been Extremely. said. Um I, I think that's that's sickening. It is. I don't understand how somebody can disregard. I mean, maybe it's because she's so desensitized to births and whatnot because she no, sees it every day. That. Mm-hmm. But that doesn't mean you get to just dis- disregard somebody else's feelings and emotions. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I just think that that's just it's not something. scary. Yeah. And she had to be put under general anesthesia, too, which... I'm sure she was not expecting whatsoever. Yeah. So let's talk about the medical stuff that's going on in here. The article says that they missed the critical window Mm -hmm. uh, post-administration of the 
Pitocin to deliver their child vaginally, vaginally yep. which if we haven't said, or if you didn't hear it in the article, by the way, this, this particular child was term. So they went, they went to the appointment on their due date. When you were going to have your C-section, Siona, I asked them if I could observe, mm-hmm. but I was also offered sure. to observe. And we should say, too, that our child was born at a different hospital than the one that is this, this setting of this particular article. And every hospital has different protocols and procedures and things that they allow and don't allow. I have no idea if this particular hospital in the article typically allows people typically allows the the father to view C-sections. But um so so I was offered to see it but I also asked. However, I was told that if you did have to go under general anesthesia that I would have to leave the room at that point. Right. And can I can I make a point yeah, here too? Yeah, say whatever you want. So, um one thing to point out is that Asia was term, but by the a- time... Asa was term. Oh, sorry. Yeah. Asia, Asa was yes. term, <laughs> but when Asia went in for her appointment, her water had already broken. Um, and so she wasn't being monitored at all until she was in the hospital. The difference with my pregnancy was that our daughter was born at 29 weeks and six days, which is 11 weeks early. Um, and so... I was in the hospital. I was being monitored very closely. And so it sounds like Asia's um, C-section was somewhat of an emergency, whereas mine wasn't. I mean, mine was definitely more. It was to avoid an emergency. It was to avoid an emergency. Right. And so, you know, we we did have more time to to figure out the details, even though it was kind of a let's get the show on the road sort of a thing. Right. And the nature, if this was an emergency, there's so much we don't we don't know just from this article in terms exactly. of what's happening and what the doctor's seeing and what the nurses are seeing, not to dismiss how the patients felt because if the patients felt that way, that means something something went wrong in the care. However, if this was an emergency C-section, then I I can I can understand why they didn't allow. Asia and Solomon to the uh, the moment to pray because maybe I don't know I think I think the physicians were probably just really focused on getting the the child um out of Asia's body um maybe they didn't know how long they were planning on praying for I don't know I don't know that's a tough one like an emergency like yeah maybe you should you should if there's time you should give your patients a second to console themselves with their families. But like I was saying, we don't really know the details of what's happening in the clinic. So we don't know. We don't know what, what the decision was really to not allow them to, um, to pray together. Well, and I think that even if they're not going to allow the couple to pray together, at least offer some, you know, Reassur- yeah, like, reassurance. reassurance. Like it's the the and maybe I don't you know I don't know the the author and her stance on this um, article and story, but it seems to me as though the majority of the staff who are assisting Asia are very cold towards her. 
It does. It does seem that way. And there's also like just going back to general anesthesia. There's a lot of anxiety about Absolutely. being put under. I, I I personally don't have that anxiety because I I've had a lot of surgeries. Um and I mean it's not fun waking up from general anesthesia, but it's not something. It's something that makes me nervous, but it's not something I'm absolutely terrified of. Um, and to to clarify, general anesthesia itself is a um, is a combination of different drugs that can be administered intravenously or um, chemicals that can be administered via um, like a gas, so that it, you, when you breathe in, you're br- you're breathing in the drug and it goes through your it enters your uh, bloodstream through your alveoli, the the little um, sacs in your lungs, or or uh, or both intravenous and gas. And the I, the point of general anesthesia is so that it blocks pain signals from traveling from whatever part of you is being operated on to uh, reach your your brain. And it's also supposed to obviously keep you asleep and it's supposed to keep you from forming memories as well. So that, you know, if you've ever been under general anesthesia, you maybe they ask you to count backwards from 10 and you're out by count eight or seven and you wake up as if like a second went by and you feel terrible because it's general anesthesia. Um, but if you want to learn more about general anesthesia, there is a great video um, by Ted Ed that I will also link in the episode description. Another thing of, about general anesthesia, and I don't want you guys to get freaked out about this because I, my understanding is that this is extremely rare, but sometimes... Under general anesthesia, people can actually become conscious again, mm. and they feel and they feel everything. That sounds terrible. But they can't tell the tell, surgeon. Oh, yeah, it sounds no. that sounds terrible. Yeah, yeah, that sounds awful. Again, that is, I my understanding is that is very 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 rare. So, Siona, so, you know, what are you? What are your kind of like? What are your final thoughts of this of this story? I'm glad that I'm glad that they're kid is okay right yeah that is that's you know the the positives but i just wish for for asia and solomon's sake that read the hospital um did you know i wish i wish for them that the hospital did try to make the experience more positive um and then you know you they somewhat owned up to their mistakes but I, I wish that they had done more to to make things better I mean, it's nice that they didn't charge for that i was gonna say i guess that is a pretty service. nice you know that is pretty generous but they they she also went through a ton of emotional turmoil throughout that i don't know i you know becoming a mother going through labor and delivery it's a very emotional intense experience and for the first time to be ruined i'm sure that asia was extremely nervous to have multiple children or other children after asa was born and of course she can always choose a different hospital but sometimes you're not given that option um you know in my case i was planning to deliver at a certain hospital but because of my conditions i had to be transferred and so i wasn't familiar with the facility i wasn't familiar with any of the doctors or nurses or you know anything and so that's definitely scary um 
and then you know to have a a horrible experience is just kind of like the icing on top like why would you ever want to have any other kids after that i wouldn't yeah no i wouldn't i mean we don't want to (laughs) because of our lovely pregnancy but that's a that's an episode in and of itself yeah okay siona are you ready to continue so the next article we're going to read is titled um, Medical Examiner, Woman Died of Blood Clot to Lungs. And I just realized we didn't actually tell you the name of the first article. The first article we read about Asia and um, Asa's experience in the hospital is called For Black Mothers and Babies, Prejudice is a Stubborn Health Risk. So we are going to... Move on to the next story. Okay, this article is published by uh, WCTV Eyewitness News from December 22nd of January 15 by Kevin Clark. Um, So this takes place in a town called Blountston, Florida. I I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. I'm probably not. So I'll I'll just start reading. The attorney of Barbara Dawson's family believed there is visual evidence to show police and hospital staff didn't do enough to save Dawson's life. A nearly a newly released photo shows the 57-year-old slumped over after being arrested. She is surrounded by a um, Blountston police officer and hospital personnel. Quote, obviously she is in a medical emergency, end quote, said Tallahassee attorney Daryl Parks. Quote, the two hospital personnel that are standing there at the time and the police officer are doing nothing to assist her in the medical emergency that she that she's faced, end quote. Dawson refused to leave a Calhoun Liberty Hospital in Blonston where doctors discharged her. She then collapsed when police arrested and forcibly removed her. Details from an autopsy revealed or reveal Dawson died of a blood clot to the lung that is called a pulmonary embolism. The hospital says uh, tests were run on Dawson before she was told to leave and subsequently arrested. Officials could not say whether any of the tests would have detected the clot. Um, Siona, do you want to read the rest? Yeah. Uh, quote, this is very difficult to detect and almost impossible to treat, end quote, said Ruth Attaway, hospital CEO. It's usually immediate and often fatal. FDLE is currently investigating the case. Parks says he'd like the state agents to look at visual evidence, including any hospital surveillance video. Eyewitness News reached out to the hospital to see if there was any surveillance video. A spokesperson told us in a statement, quote, the hospital is literally in the process of installing a new camera system, but the cameras were unfortunately not in place when Mrs. Dawson was treated earlier this week, end quote. Park says the hospital's answer is fishy, quote, now we learn in the last few hours that the hospital said we don't have any surveillance, end quote. He said, quote, that seems pretty convenient to me, and most people will definitely say that doesn't pass the small test, end quote. Park says his law firm plans to file a lawsuit against either the hospital or a Blounston police officer. This is a really sad thing that happened because my my understanding is that this this woman um, went to the hospital and I believe she so she was she was sharing her symptoms with the hospital staff. They, I guess, did some tests and they i don't know I, they couldn't 
They couldn't find anything. I'm trying to pull up the other article that I have for this. Um, and so she was asked to leave, but she refused because she was feeling, she was feeling sick. She was legitimately, legitimately feeling sick. So when she, so when she refused to leave, the hospital staff did in fact call the, call the police. I don't know if that's like one of those things where they're supposed to call the hospital security first. This is also Florida and a, and a hospital I am not familiar with. Um, but they called the police and she was force, forcefully removed. And she ended up having a pulmonary embolism, which is when a um, it's essentially a blood clot to one of your your pulmonary arteries. And she ended up passing from it because it wasn't though. That's one of those things where you have to act very, very fast to intervene medically, just like a, a stroke or a heart attack. And um, she was just in the back of the cop car and they didn't they didn't know what was going on. And the and it, like the article said, the hospital staff was just standing there. I just find that incredibly sad. Um, if if somebody is expressing their concerns and feeling uncomfortable or in pain, I just think that as a, a doctor, a nurse, whoever was dealing with her in the hospital, should have really listened to those concerns. And of course, you know anybody could say, "I'm not feeling well," or whatever the the excuse can be um for those who aren't serious but i think that if she's been in the hospital she's had testing done she's still complaining of you know discomfort why why dismiss those complaints i know and that's that's it something that seems so odd to me that's something that's actually seems to be a, a theme not just in doing research for for this for this episode but just with things that I've heard, too, is that sure. apparently black patients and it seems like particularly black women just like don't get listened to by their. By their. Um, physicians, by their physicians nurses. or their care team. Yeah. Which is very which is strange. To, I don't understand. I don't understand not taking somebody's health concerns seriously. Right. Especially, it's, it's not like she just walked in there and was like, hey, I'm feeling weird, and they turned her away. Like, she had been an inpatient, right? She was, was she actually in? Um, I don't, I don't remember right off the top of my head. Um, I did find the other article. So this one, the same one about, um, that mentions um, Barbara Dawson, the, the patient that died of the pulmonary embolism. This article is called The Dilemma of the Black Patient. It's by Yolanda Wilson, PhD, and it's published in the Healthcare Blog. Um, Okay, and I'm going to, so I'm reading from this article. Consider what happened to Barbara Dawson when she stood her ground. Miss Dawson was having trouble breathing and went to Calhoun Liberty Hospital in Blounston, Florida. The emergency rooms, the emergency room docs determined that she was stable and discharged her. However, Mrs. Dawson, knowing that something was not right with her body, refused to leave and pled to be examined further. Hospital staff responded by calling the police, who promptly arrested her for trespassing and disorderly conduct. Even after she uh, collapsed outside of the arresting officer's patrol vehicle, the officer assumed she was faking and and can be heard on the dash cam video telling an unresponsive Dawson, quote, 
falling down like this, laying down, that's not going to stop you from going to jail, end quote. Within hours, Mrs. Dawson was dead from a pulmonary embolism. So that's what the article says. You know, I don't know what what Miss Dawson said to her doctor, to the emergency room doctors, or what kind of tests they did to determine why she was having trouble breathing. Which just sounds like they didn't even determine that. They just told her she was fine and to leave. The bottom line is you should listen to your patients. Right. And I also should say that I have I have no idea if you can detect a blood clot that is about to happen. I don't think you can do that. I think if I think people that have like um a high like a high amount of plaque buildup like that um like I think it's atherosclerosis. You know, having that does inc- increase the risk that that stuff may dislodge and float around the bloodstream until it lands somewhere where it is dangerous, such as in one of your coronary arteries and causes a heart attack, or in one of the pulmonary arteries or, or that would cause a pulmonary embolism. I don't think there is a test to see if somebody is about to have that kind of that kind of thing. It's a very sure. very fast thing. Very thing that just kind of happens without warning. But I still I still think that they should have been listening to her complaints. Oh yeah, absolutely. I'm not saying they shouldn't yeah, have. Yeah. It's just it seems what is negligent the right word because I mean it seems as though I'd say dismissive. Dismissive. Okay. It I don't seems think very the doctors dismissive. got in trouble. I don't know if the d- physicians that examined her got in trouble for um, I don't know, maybe not doing enough. Right. I'm guessing emergency room I know they they I'm guessing they followed their pro- their protocol and their own knowledge of what to do but it, in this case they failed to listen to Dawson and assumed I don't know what they thought of her that she was maybe malingering for for drugs I don't know it doesn't say maybe. that in any of the articles no I'm speculating on what is going through the physicians heads sure I mean it but it also just seems it seems or it appears I suppose um, that calling the police is just over the top. I, I don't know. I don't, I feel like if she's, if she's really not willing to leave and is definitely complaining about discomfort and whatnot, why call the police? That just seems so. Yeah. Maybe do some extra tests. Yeah, that exactly. That's my point. Like it just, it seemed like they went to the extreme before they even really understood what she was truly feeling. They weren't considering all the options of what this patient could be going through. Yeah. Yeah. And then for the police to make that comment, that bothers me. Yeah, that does bother me. And I think, you know, uh, because there's, there have been quite a few things going on in stories that have been coming up um, since George Floyd's murder. That involved the police. That involved the police and very careless and, dismissive comments hearing especially their comment about lying down isn't going to keep you from going to jail just right and this and this happened to barbara dawson in 2015 sure and i think i don't remember hearing about this happening this went this got this went kind of by the wayside barbara dawson's story didn't get attention yeah yeah i don't know what i don't i don't know what else to say to that i mean there's really not much more to say but it's unfortunate that, you know, her story went unheard and it sounds like 
there was just complete disregard for her life. I know the I, I know the family, I think, pressed charges against um, at least the hospital, if sure. not the police department. Did I say that? I'm really having a hard time remembering the things that I'm just reading, guys, and I'm sorry. <laughs> anyway, so you want final final thoughts on that? It's just it's heartbreaking to hear that people are experiencing this sort of discrimination, especially, and maybe it's because I present as a fair skinned person and my dad's a, a doctor. I have always had complete faith in the healthcare system and, and, you know, I've, I put my trust in doctors and nurses and expect that when I have complaints that they're going to listen or when I'm, you know, struggling or feeling discomfort that they're not going to disregard that because I haven't had those experiences before. So hearing that other people do have these experiences and potentially every single time they're in front of a doctor or a nurse is, is really um, disheartening and it's sad. Yeah. And I, I, I completely agree. And I think that with these, both these stories, it comes down to, the physician, the nurses, the the hospital staff, the whole care team, being able to listen to the patient and taking and right. taking them seriously for their for their wishes and their concerns. Exactly. This is an issue, and I think um, healthcare practitioners could just like be aware of the the realities for some patient populations, right. and um, do everything you can to give them a good experience and mitigate. You know. Just don't give them any additional crap. <laughs> right. Well, and, and not that we've had experience as the doctors or nurses or the healthcare team, but I mean, coming from the patient side, you would think that that feedback would be valuable. You know, receiving feedback from patients, I would think, would be incredibly valuable because, you know, then in future instances or experiences, you can take that knowledge and use it in a positive way to ensure that the patient is receiving the best um, care and and you're not leaving them with an unpleasant experience. Because mm-hmm. I'm sure that these unpleasant experiences then make it so that when people or those people who have been affected have to go to the doctors, their their anxiety is probably through the roof because they're expecting that this is the way they're going to be treated. And nobody wants to put themselves in that sort of a situation. I mean, I myself would not. So I just, I think that if doctors and nurses or healthcare personnel listen to this, that, you know, it's important to keep in mind. Yeah. If I, if, if I felt like, if I felt like my, like a, if I belong to a, a group of people that I felt like just aren't that, and there's a reputation that we are just not listened to when we go to the hospital or seek, you know, seek any kind of medical care, I would probably be very unlikely to, to go. And if I could just say one thing, going back to Asia and Solomon's story, I think it's really unfair that when pregnant women, especially first-time mothers, go to the hospital and are addressing concerns or, you know, towards the end of your pregnancy or the third trimester, women tend to have Braxton Hicks contractions, meaning that their body is um, mimicking a contraction, but the baby's not actually, um, or the woman's not in labor. But my what I'm trying to get at is when women go to the hospital, it's so incredibly unfair that 
doctors and or nurses will um, sometimes disregard what they're saying or make them feel stupid when they think they're in labor or they think that they're experiencing something that they might not actually be experiencing. But I mean, as a a first time mother, you're only listening to your intuition and what you think is happening. You know, obviously you don't know really what's happening because you've never experienced labor before, but I just don't think that that's fair. I, you know, on a whole other level, women do experience, I think that discrimination that they're stupid and don't know what they're doing. Um, when it comes to labor at times. Interesting. Yeah. Interesting. <sighs> Fun stuff, guys. So the next, so the next, um, the next article I, I have is, is not necessarily an article. It is, it is a research paper that I found called, uh, it's a long title. Um, dissecting racial bias in an algorithm used to manage the health of populations. So, and and this this paper is by um a team at uh well, I know the the principal investigator is at UC Berkeley I, if i'm pronouncing his name right it's uh Ziad Obermeyer and others i'll have the article posted in the episode description or a link to the article posted in the episode description if you're interested in reading it but i will read the abstract Health systems rely on commercial prediction algorithms to identify and help patients with complex health needs. We show that a widely used algorithm typical of this industry-wide approach and affecting millions of patients exhibits a significant racial bias. At a given risk score, black patients are considerably sicker than white patients, as evidenced by signs of uncontrolled illness. Uh, Remedying this this disparity would increase the percentage of black patients receiving additional help from 17.7 to 46.5%. The bias arises because the algorithm predicts healthcare costs rather than illness. But unequal access to care means that we spend less money caring for black patients than white patients. Thus, despite healthcare costs appearing to be in um, effective proxy for health by some measures of predictive accuracy, large racial biases arise. Uh, We suggest that the choice of um, convenient, seemingly effective proxies for ground truth can be an important source of algorithmic bias in many contexts. So I'm not going to read this entire research paper to you guys because that would be terrible. But um, but I mean, it's it's a it's a good paper. It's just um, it's definitely it's a long read. But um, but I think what is going to help is if we clarify some key things in this article. And those things are going to be algorithms, high risk care management and bias. So an algorithm in general is a set of rules or procedures followed to process data or perform calculations by a computer. Think, you can think of an of a input-output machine or a flowchart. A flowchart, I think, is probably the best illustration of an algorithm where something goes in, it, gets, it, it, it follows a certain sequence of steps, gets processed, and there's some result at the end. I think a good example of an algorithm is actually like a cooking recipe. So you have you have ingredients or pieces you put together, you perform some some tasks, and you hopefully get a tasty result. But 
and now, and now if this is if these are inaccurate, please any computer science person out there listening can uh, correct me on this. Um, algorithms that perform statistics on large data sets as vast and complex as patient and medical data are probably bound to have some kind of bias um, or inaccuracies inherent in, in those models. Now, this widespread algorithm um, that's mentioned in the article, I think, was developed by Optum, which is a, uh, I think, part of United Healthcare Group or UHG, which is actually headquartered here in in Eden Prairie, right, Siona? In Prairie, Minnesota. I think so. I know they're in Minnesota, or they're headquarters. Yeah, they are head. They are headquartered yeah. here. And apparently, this algorithm is applied to uh, like a, over 200 million people in the U.S. each year. Um, now, that's a lot of people. Which is <laughs> that is a lot of yeah. That's a lot of people because the U.S. population is like what 300 million plus something like that. Yeah. yeah. So the data for this algorithm, the paper says, or, or the data comes from. Um, according to the paper, quote, uh, so working with a large academic hospital, we identified all uh, primary care patients enrolled in high in uh, risk based contracts from 2013 to 2015, end quote. And uh, still, according to the paper, the algorithm itself uses raw insurance data. And that um, that includes, quote, demographics, uh, for example, age, sex, uh, insurance type. Diagnosis and procedure codes, medications, and detailed costs. Notably, the algorithm specifically excludes race. So I'll say that again. This algorithm actually excludes race, end quote. Researching this topic, I was not able to actually find what this algorithm is. The research team that was granted access to this to this proprietary data and algorithm, I'm guessing probably signed a bunch of non-disclosure agreements because they were Optum actually gave them their some of some what I assume would be de-identified patient data as well as the algorithm, like the program to run it. So next is high-risk care management. So high-risk care management, according to the National Association of Community Health Centers, which is a nonprofit organization that advocates for the nation's medically underserved and uninsured. And according to this organization, high-risk care management involves intensive one-on-one services provided by a nurse or other health worker to individuals with complex health and social needs. The formal design of a health center care management program can ensure a standardization or standardized approach to managing high risk patients by a care manager. Okay, this is I don't want to I don't want to get too far into the weeds on this. This is just like boring. But the important thing to take away from high risk care management is the patients that are enrolled in those programs typically have at least one or more chronic disease. But as the definition said, they also have social, uh, they have some social barriers to care. So uh, a chronic disease could include like diabetes, heart disease, um, probably, I'm guessing probably cancer. Um, But they also may have social complexities that they, I mean, mostly they may be impoverished. So they may not have, they may have insurance, but they may not necessarily have the means to really pay a lot out of pocket 
sure. for healthcare. It's okay. probably something like state insurance or like Medicare or Medicaid or Medicaid, depending on their age. Yeah, yeah. So, does this high risk care management tie into the algorithm, or is it completely? It does separate? because the okay. algorithm apparently is. So, so this is the other important thing to take away from high risk care management is because the patients have a lot of complex healthcare and social needs. These programs tend to be very expensive in terms of the resources and the money that is that is needed to care for these patients. So the algorithms are supposed to help the care teams uh, accurately determine how to how to take care of the patient because because of the resource um, because of the demands on resources, the hospital administration wants the resources to be used efficiently, and the sure. point of the algorithm is to assist the care team with doing with with providing care while making sure the resources are allocated efficiently that does that sense. make sense yeah okay. that does make sense um it i gotta seems, go ahead i was going to say it just it seems a little counterintuitive that the program would be extremely uh expensive because the people that are usually being treated don't have tons of money so the resources i mean so are taxpayers paying for for these so no because the because the the patients that were in that are included in this data set are all insured oh right so it wouldn't necessarily be taxpayer money but yeah i know i that's that's a good question that is a really good question um i just had to piece together how that tied in I don't know if Medicare or Medicaid would cover these. I'm not, I can't speak right, for yeah. either of those or programs. Or even state insurance. I don't know. Yeah, because I don't I f- know. I feel that there are, they're very. Um, limited. Yeah, thank you. Limited yeah. in, in what resources they will allow their, um, or the insurees to use or the types of resources they are given. Right, are right. quite limited. Okay, and then the last thing that I the last thing we have to go over is what we mean by bias. So I want to differentiate between what we mean by statistical bias and what we mean by racial racial bias since this is this episode is basically about racial bias in the healthcare system. So there so with statistical bias, there are several different types of statistical bias, but in general, um, statistical bias is either the over and uh, the overestimation or underestimation of a parameter. So in other words, it's the difference between the estimated value or its true value. Okay, bear just bear with me, guys, here. So uh, this may not be the best example, but let's say that I estimate my car's gas mileage based on its make and model year, number of cylinders, et cetera, to be about 38 miles to the gallon. And I have um, I have some data that I can put into a model to, tr- to, to uh, estimate that. But when my car is uh, tested, let's say it gets 40 miles to the gallon. So that means my model is slightly biased because it underestimated my car's true gas mileage by two miles per gallon. Okay. Bias in terms of racial biases, attitudes, or perhaps preconceived notions about people based on their race that affect how we act towards them. Racial bias can take many forms from outright um, conscious prejudice to something slight of hand or insensitive without even being aware of it 
without the intention to harm and and everything in between. Uh, the results are the same in varying degrees of not providing another human being with the full respect and dignity they deserve. And so what's common between statistical bias and racial bias is representation of the truth. Statistical models can produce over or underestimated results, whereas humans can approach other individuals with preconceived notions of what the person is like based on outward appearance. At the end of the day, it is about misrepresentation. So going back to the algorithm, basically the, the bias arises in that because the algorithm uses cost as a proxy, so what that means is the algorithm is estimating how sick somebody is based on how much they've spent on healthcare in the past. And the algorithm gets that information from the, in, from the insurance claims and the procedure codes. So because in general, non-white populations in this country do face uh, greater barriers to entry relative to the white population in this country, that means that their history, their data shows that they've spent less time or that they've spent less money on healthcare in the past. So, of course, if they're enrolled in a high-risk care management program, the algorithm is going to show that they need less care because, based on their history, they don't need as much attention, i.e., they don't need as much attention from the care team. You may be wondering, why is an algorithm substituting a physician, nurses, and a care team's knowledge for medical care? Well, the short answer is, is that it doesn't. So it's supposed to be a guide based on to, just to allocate, re, allocate resources efficiently. But it doesn't mean that if you are black and you have cancer and you're in, and for some reason you're in a high-risk care management program and the white guy across the hall has the same type of cancer, it doesn't mean that a doctor in their right mind is going to look at the white guy and say, we need to treat this guy more aggressively than the black guy because he's white. That, that, is, that is not, what I'm getting at is that this algorithm is not the doctor. It is not a substitute for the physician. I will read in this article what, the, what it points out to be the mechanisms of bias, because there are some interesting things in here. The paper does offer um, why there might be a difference in cost between the two, the, between the two groups of patients that identify themselves as black versus patients that identify themselves as white. So I'm going to quote from the article. Now, how might these disparities in cost arise? The literature broadly suggests two main potential channels. First, uh, poor patients face substantial barriers to accessing health care, even when enrolled in insurance plans. Although the population we study is entirely insured, there are many other mechanisms by which poverty can lead to disparities in use of health care, such as geography and differential access to transportation, competing demands for jobs or childcare, or knowledge of reasons to seek care. So let's just talk about geography and transportation for a second, Siona, because when we were in the hospital, we knew a family in particular who lived like a few hours south of the hospital we were at, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. And what you told me the other day, she, she basically like lived there, right? Right. Yeah. So, I mean, this woman in particular, she um, had her baby and the baby was in the NICU and um, 
she would stay there quite often, but she also had other children. She had a business that she ran. And so she would have to go home throughout the week. And so um, she would go home at the end of a day and that would be a three hour drive back to her home and then she'd get up in the morning and drive another three hours just to get to the hospital and I don't think she did that daily I think it was maybe every other day or every couple days um but yeah she would make that three-hour trek and the reason that being is because her baby needed um some intense care and the neonatal intensive care unit at the hospital we were at is is probably one of the best in our city i would say yeah i think so and so, uh, yes and i can vouch for that that child did need she needed a care, lot of based care. on what yeah. we heard from the patient yeah. herself yeah and then in terms of transportation there was another family that we knew too that their their only means of transportation to the to the hospital was um, by bus by bus by yeah. public transportation right yeah and it's also important to point out there that she was a single mom so she was having to do everything on her own in terms of ensuring that she had her own needs and her met and that her child also had his needs met. Exactly. And that that's a lot to ask of one person. Yeah, it in is. In that particular setting. Um and and especially in so I I'll, I sh- I'll okay, how about this? I'll say that the that the family we knew that live outside of the city, they are they are not black. Um but Minnesota has had issues recently, but I mean, what it seems recent, maybe it's not, with um, rural areas really struggling, particularly with um, labor and delivery right. wards. Yeah. Um, Many of them closing. Yeah, a lot of them close. Yeah. So if you are out in the out outside of the Twin Cities in Minnesota and you're going into labor, you you like have to come to, you the, to be transported you basically yeah you have yeah. to be transported here and that's um that's a huge disruption right yeah not only that i mean the the fees associated with that whether you're being you know lifted by helicopter or just being rushed by ambulance i mean those costs are, are significant and then on top of that or by helicopter for that matter well i said that oh you did i said whether you're being lifted by helicopter or rushed by ambulance oh my god Sian, i'm sorry um it's okay and then and then on top of that you have just the general fees and bills that are associated with having a baby and then if you're incorporating potentially any NICU or icc icc which is intensive oh infant care center yes um or the other various wards in the children's hospital. I mean, those are substantial as well. So but they are. Um, but that's the care that we you would need. But right. unfortunately, that's care that you just are increasingly not being able to get yeah. in rural Minnesota. And I, I don't. I can only speak for Minnesota. I don't know if that phenomenon is becoming nationwide. Nationwide. Sure. Um, and yeah. well, now with COVID, there are even more substantial mm-hmm. um, impacts on families because as far as we know, once you're in the um, NICU, at least you can't leave. You can only have people deliver things to you. So if you don't even live in the city and you don't have people around you, you're, excuse my language, but fucked for the most part <laughs> because there's no way you can, if you do leave, you can't go back into the NICU. And so if you're a parent of a child who's in that ward you i for sure didn't want to leave my kid i yeah. felt guilty no, every I, time i, I did so I, I didn't want to either um i'm going to continue reading from the the paper 
Uh, to the extent that race and socioeconomic status are correlated, these factors will definitely affect black patients. Second, race could affect costs directly via several channels. Direct, quote, taste-based discrimination. I, I just want to say, I don't know what that means. So if anybody knows what taste-based discrimination means, please tell me. Um, changes to the doctor-patient relationship or others. A recent trial randomly assigned black patients to a black or white primary care provider and found significantly higher uptake of recommended preventive care when the provider was black. This is perhaps the most rigorous demonstration of this effect, and it fits with a larger literature on potential mechanisms by which race can affect healthcare directly. Now, I did find that study that they're referencing where black patients were assigned to either a black or a white primary care provider. And that was, that was a study. They had over 1,300 black patients in the Oakland, California area only assigned to a primary care physician. And I find it really interesting that black patients did have better outcomes with black physicians. Right. Or at least... In this case, what they're saying is an uptake for recommended preventative care. I do think that's really interesting. Yeah. And I think that's really good. And I hope that study is replicated in other places around the country to see if the results are the, are the same. Sure. Um, I, now, I just want to go back to the algorithm a little bit more because there is something that can happen when um, these algorithms are followed closely that don't just affect black patients but can affect everybody so a a nurse friend of mine who used to work in an outpatient clinic they said that there are like different codes for different um services well there are different codes for different services but there are also different codes for um like measure like test measurements oh yes so one one that um my friend pointed out it was one called the A1C, which is for patients with type 2 and pre-diabetes only. Um, and it is essentially a measurement of blood glucose. There's another scale, too, for depression. And that one is called the PHQ-9. So, a, you know, asthma and cholesterol and other um, chronic conditions like this would also have their own codes. I don't know what those are called, though. Um, but apparently these measurements are put into algorithms that or systems that were used in this outpatient clinic and apparently what can happen is if the measurement doesn't fall within an appropriate range you get dinged so the person that's primarily um, responsible for the patient can get dinged for not having uh, a say like an a1c like a person's blood glucose in a range that would be considered healthy Mm, i see so there's a race component to this too because not every race is going to have the same exact measurements. I mean, not even every person is going to have the same exact measurements. There's going to be some change there. But let's say you're an, a nurse and you're trying to get a blood pressure within what is considered a healthy range, but your patient, I mean, you know, some people just have higher blood pressure blood naturally. Pressure, right. So if you can't get that blood pressure into a normal range because the other per- that's just how the other person's biology is or that's a function of their race, you're still going to get dinged. My point is that these ranges don't necessarily account for the variability in race or even biology, which is, which is, which is kind of ridiculous, I, I think. Yeah. And not only, it doesn't and now, make sense. Well, here's that. Okay, so it, it actually gets worse. <laughs> so if, you, if, the, if there are dings 
in the care provider's um, record based on what this algorithm is saying, they will face a review board at the hospital or a clinic. Yeah. Does that include nurses? Mm-hmm. So uh, that makes sense. I uh, just to sidetrack for a second, but whenever, so, you know, with my pregnancy, I was obviously, um, I was diagnosed with preeclampsia. And so that's, um, high blood pressure, um, due to the pregnancy, but I've also had higher blood, blood pressure throughout my life. So, but that makes me wonder if they would take my blood pressure multiple times in one appointment because of that. Because there was there was sometimes, you know, occasions where I'd go in for a routine checkup and they would take my blood pressure like three or four times. Like they would take it different, you know, throughout the appointment at different times. But and I just never understood because it was like obvious to me that my blood pressure was one elevated because I was pregnant and two because high blood pressure runs in my family. That's not anything I can avoid. Um and so I just, I never understood why it was taken multiple times. I get one or two times, you know, just to make sure that it's, you're truly getting the number that you're getting, but three or four seems a bit much. Right. And so another thing that can happen too is, is a system can trigger a flag if a child is missing a vaccination oh, and a physician may you know, get to know the family and, and that family may, for whatever reason, refuse to vaccinate their kids, right? Now, that missing vaccination will, like I said, ding the doctor both internally by some supervisory board, like I said, so the physician or and even nurses can face a review board and get like a, a negative external review. However, the system has consequences for the clinic as well, like as a whole. So that means a algorithm is evaluating physicians who for whatever reason may get negative dings and that also can affect the hospital the clinic itself which it's is just, which is crazy it does crazy to me right i just i feel like the parameters of this algorithm is not it doesn't it's not it doesn't make sense because it's it's not you know expecting genetics or you know beliefs i mean obviously you yeah. can't really but but my point is is that like there are multiple other factors that should be included in this algorithm i i think yeah i i i agree i like agree you can't and just you can't just ding a doctor or a nurse because somebody's blood pressure is higher like if it's higher it's higher i mean there there should sometimes be some sometimes it's just higher right there should be some way to enter into the algorithm that this person either has a family history of higher blood pressure or they just present with higher blood pressure. I mean, you know what I mean? Like, I I feel like just because in that one instance, their blood pressure was higher, that person should be negatively impacted. Impacted. Yeah. Yeah, Especially if they're following protocol procedures, you know, they're doing everything right, but they're now being dinged. Yeah. Yeah. And they may be, they may be a good doctor and, and, and I can, I can imagine a situation where some, doctor that might be very type a obsesses over the numbers right and really just like follows that just to avoid like a negative review which is not how medicine is supposed to be practiced but anyway (laughs) (laughs) it's got to be incredibly frustrating to be a doctor when those or a nurse when yeah that comes up bureaucratic bullshit yeah i mean because if you're truly trying to do your job and provide the best health care for people but then you're getting in trouble for their 
health needs. Yeah. I mean, that's the whole point in having a healthcare system, right? Is that these people are here to help society with their health needs and now they're fucking being negatively reviewed for something that's out of their control. I, yeah, I, I that know. just seems like bullshit to me. I, that seems like <laughs> bullshit to me too. Okay, so now we're going to, since we're talking about ranges and statistics now we are going to get to the statistics and these are not going to be pleasant so if you are hearing these stories and you're thinking well these these are just a few cases it, yes they are i am yeah we are presenting only a few cases but there are statistics that show that there are these um discrepancies amongst the white and white and black population in the united states in terms of health care and the one we're going to we're just going to get the most unpleasant one out of the way first. So um, black versus white infant mortality, according to the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services or HHS in 2017, African-Americans have 2.3 times the infant mortality rate as non-Hispanic whites. African-Americans are 3.8 times as likely to die from complications related to low birth weight as compared to non-Hispanic white infants. African Americans had over twice the the sudden infant death syndrome mortality rate as non-Hispanic whites in 2017. These are this this particular group of stats is 2017. In 2017, African American mothers were 2.3 times more likely than non-Hispanic white mothers to receive late or no prenatal care. The top five leading causes of death for African-American infants from the first one I read being the leading cause to the fifth one I read being the fifth leading cause, low birth weight, birth defects or congenital malformations, maternal complications, accidents or unintended unintended injuries, and sudden infant death syndrome or SIDS. The the those that um, that list from one to five comes from the Kaiser Family Foundation on um, infant mortality by state in 2017 and child trends um, birth uh, birth rates by race data also in 2017. Now, since we talked about black um, patients having better outcomes with black physicians, blacks enrolling in medical schools. According to the Association of American Medical Colleges, or the AAMC, in the academic year of 2019 to 2020, there were 6,783 black or African-American students enrolled in medical colleges compared to 46,205 white students, both men and women. I want to point out that the AAMC only has their enrollment data on this particular table characterized by men and women. Now, black students were not the least represented people of color. There were only 199 Native American or Alaska Native students enrolled in 2019 to 2020. From the academic year of 2015 to 2016 to 2019 to 2020, so uh, five academic years, Enrollment of black or African-American students increased by 26%, whereas enrollment for white students actually decreased by 2.5%. Of the entire enrolled medical school population in 2019 to 2020, a total of 92,758 students, 7.3% were black or African-American, and 49.8% were white. 
So you can do the math. Whatever remaining um, percentage there is, there are um, other uh, races, other races, other um, groups. So in short, there are an increasing number of black medical doctors, but as a population, they remain underrepresented. Okay, black and white opioid prescriptions. We will probably do an episode on the opioid epidemic at some point. Um, But according to a study titled Trends in Black and White Opioid Mortality in the United States from 1979 to 2015, published by the National Institutes of Health, over the period of 1979 to 2015, age standardized opioid mortality rates increased for both the white and the black populations, although rates of an increase were initially similar in the two populations and driven by heroin. The period of 1993 to 2010 saw a rapid increase in opioid mortality for whites largely due to prescription painkillers. Since 2010, opioid mortality has been increasing rapidly for both groups, largely driven by an increase in heroin and synthetic opioids. So, so, so that's so that's from the National Institutes of Health. So, and I want to. So, in my research, I found claims that and corroborating corroborating evidence that the rapid increase in mortality rate for whites, uh, based on uh, or that was caused by prescription painkillers, is due to most is is oh my gosh is due mostly to physicians being more likely to prescribe opioid painkillers to their white patients rather than their black patients why okay so why is this uh there is a persistent belief among some healthcare providers and lay people that black people have a higher pain tolerance than whites i was just gonna say that i think it would be interesting to see i mean a sad interest but the statistics of deaths among um, Hispanic mothers and babies compared to white and or black. Oh, I can tell you that. Siona, can you repeat your question, please? Oh, I, so what I said is, um, although extremely sad, I would be curious to see what the infant mortality rate is um, for Hispanic uh, mothers and or babies compared to black and or white babies. Well, I can tell you that because I did a little digging and so, so the data that I got from the Kaiser Family Foundation, it, it has mortality rates um, from 2017 or infant mortality rates from 2017 by location as a total in the United States and then by the state. So, so for the United States, the non-white, non-Hispanic white infant mortality rate uh, in twenty in twenty seventeen, it was four point six nine percent. So that is four point six nine infant deaths per thousand births. Number of infant deaths per one thousand live births based on um based on linked birth and death records from twenty seventeen. For non-Hispanic blacks it was 10.88 for hispanics it was 5.1 and for other it was four five or 4.58 the difference between the mortality rate between blacks and whites is is a whole 6.19 whereas the difference between hispanics and whites is only 0.4 so i will figure out a way to post this spreadsheet that i made so you guys can see this too if you're interested 
basically all across the board, Hispanic infant mortality rates are, are like closer to the white mortality rates than there are for the black infant mortality rates. And it's alarming to see how high these numbers are for non-Hispanic black. Yeah, it's patients. like a lot of them are in the double like digits. 14.48% for what is that, Ohio? Yeah, and so so this I mean, that's so so this the other thing too is I did notice like so some of these some of these columns have um NSD in them and NSD means uh, not sufficient data. So I did notice that like okay, so for like Wyoming um they only have the infant mortality rate for non-Hispanic whites in Wyoming, but that's also because the like white population wyoming is like is like significant right yeah like i don't even think and the only reason there's not sufficient data is because it says um figure does not meet standard of of reliability holy crap of reliability there we go or precision based on fewer than 20 deaths in the numerator so the numerator is the top number of the fraction over a thousand because it's the rate is supposed to be it's the number of deaths over a thousand live births so So in so that so basically like looking at wyoming and like literally it says literally there's no enough there's not enough data for blacks hispanics or even other races and i just I, i i seriously i just attribute that to mean that there just there aren't enough deaths in that state to be counted yeah because those populations are not as high as the white population especially in wyoming there's a lower infant mortality rate among hispanics in arkansas than there is for whites right um which i do find interesting also but the other thing i do want to say too is the number of times not sufficient data comes up for blacks is 16 versus for whites it's only two so i want to go back to the beliefs that persist about um, blacks having a higher pain tolerance. This belief is held by some people in the medical community and by lay people. So people that are just not in, in healthcare at all. The paper is called Racial Bias in the Pain Assessment and Treatment Recommendations and False Belief about Biological Difference Between Blacks and Whites by um, Kelly M. Hoffman and others. I will also have this in the episode description if you want to take a look at it. But I'm going to summarize the research. So basically, they took 121 lay participants and 418 medical students, and they gave them a survey that asked them um, questions like, I'll just read some of the questions because some of these are just insane. So some of them said, on average, blacks age more slowly than whites. Another one was whites on average have larger brains than blacks. What? Yeah. Another one of these questions is whites have more efficient respiratory systems than blacks. This is um, extremely biased. I know. Well, okay. So, so the other, another is whites have a better sense of hearing compared to blacks. Oh I mean, gosh. it's just like questions like these, but the, the research is given this questionnaire because they wanted to see how the medical students and the lay people would answer Answer, right right? so yeah yeah there i mean some of these are complete horseshit questions but yeah like blacks are less likely to contract spinal cord diseases like multiple sclerosis 
I think anybody can get black MS. People, black people's <laughs> skin has more collagen. Like it's thicker than white people's skin. Oh my goodness. Like We're getting to that one. Um, Stronger bones. So so they asked oh, those questions goodness. to evaluate. Um, oh, and they were supposed to scale them on a scale of one to six. One being definitely untrue and six being definitely true. So they wanted to see how all the participants would answer these questions. Sure. Then they gave the lay people and the medical students some scenarios. So they gave the lay people and the medical students scenarios of different uh, patients being seen for some kind of pain. Sure. And the participants were supposed to rate the amount of pain that, w- that the patient was having. Right. In addition, the medical students were supposed to evaluate their treatment plan, their treatment for that right. pain. Right, yep, yeah. So there were two different studies. The, the study one was the study conducted on the lay people, and study two was the one conducted on medical students. Study one demonstrates, oh, so I'll just read from the, the conclusion. Study one thus demonstrates that white adults without medical training endorse at least some beliefs about biological differences between blacks and whites, many of which are false and um fantastical in nature such as for example black people's blood coagulates more quickly than white people's blood study one also demonstrates that these beliefs are related to racial bias in pain perception among a sample of white adults without medical training okay Study two. Study two demonstrates that similar to white laypersons in study one, many white medical students and residents hold beliefs about biological differences between blacks and whites, many of which are false and fantastical in nature, and that these false beliefs are related to racial bias in pain perceptions. Furthermore, study two also revealed that white medical students and residents who endorsed false beliefs showed racial bias in the accuracy of their pain treatment recommendations. I think that those medical students and or residents should not be allowed to practice. <laughs> yeah, right. I think that that, if, if those are the results of a study, I would, one, be very, very scared for future patients of theirs. Oh, God, yeah. And two, I, I think... Whether or not they they hold, I mean, clearly they hold racial biases against black people, but they're kind of stupid. I mean, I'm sorry, like I, the human body is a human body. The, the 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 color of your skin does not dictate whether you have a higher pain tolerance or your skin is thicker or whatever stupid idea they have. Right, right. Now, I, now, so so I I should say that just like with the nature of studies like this. This, as far as I know, is only one study that f- right. found these results. Sure. And the o- and the other thing too is like okay, like it's 121 lay people and 418 medical students. So if we're just talking about numbers, especially among lay people, 121 is a very small. It's a number. small group of people. Now it right. is a sample, right? So like yeah. there are probably more people that do believe those things and that is deplorable especially deplorable that medical students and residents seem to believe that that's what i'm saying yeah like why are they allowed to practice then like i i think that should be like a a pass fail sort of thing (laughs) pass fail (laughs) yeah literally it should be a pass fail like if you if you're not stupid you you pass and if you believe these ridiculous racial biases that black people i mean i don't want to say that black people can't have higher pain tolerances and whatnot because it definitely 
I think pain tolerance is that, is, but that doesn't de- depends it's not, on the person, right? And, it doesn't and, depend on the color of their skin. So if they do have these racial biases, they should not be able to practice medicine. Like end of story, because that's stupid, and they're not going to properly treat people or give proper um, recommendations. Pain, pain recommendations, yeah, 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 for for patients, and so they're essentially going to make them suffer. Okay, before you cancel your next doctor's appointment, <laughs> yeah, I want to let you guys know that I've asked people that I know that are, are in medical school explicitly. Do medical schools teach things like this? And the answer is no. Medical schools do not endorse explicitly ideas like this. One thing that is changing is that in the classroom, a lot of examples for different rashes or like dermatological ailments were like a lot of times just um, on white people. Right. And they are doing a better job about making sure that there are other skin colors represented, especially at looking at dermatological ailments, because uh, they there were issues with misdiagnosis, misdiagnoses of diseases on black people because the doctor like literally didn't know what he was like, looking at. what he was looking right. at. Yeah. And that is he important. That a is doctor important. can be anything other than be a any. guy, too. Um and like I reached out to a physician friend of mine also and like there are physicians whose whose jobs are to make sure that students are provided with adequate knowledge that like these things that I've read are false and fantastical. Right. Like there are yeah. people that are part of medical school staffs whose job it is to make sure that things like this aren't continued to be spread through the. Uh, through the student populace, the resident populace, and through the physician populace. So yes, this is this is disgusting, and this is ter- this is pretty scary. Um, but there there are there are things that are changing about this, which is good. Yeah, that is good. I mean, you have to change with the times. There's no yeah, way absolutely. that you can you can remain stagnant if you own your beliefs yes that there's yes. just no way so the last thing i want to talk about is there are also persistent beliefs that blacks have thicker skin than white people and investigating that what i found is that idea goes back to the yellow fever epidemic in philadelphia in 1793 where I got this information is from a paper titled The Myth of Innate Racial Differences Between White and Black People's Bodies, Lessons from the 1793 Yellow Fever Pandemic in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania by... It's like Rana Asali Hogarth? Yes, PhD. What Hogarth points out is when African slaves were put on ships and brought to this country during this Yellow Fever uh, pandemic, the white people on those boats noticed that they got sick, but the Africans on the ships did not. It doesn't explicitly say it in this paper, but my best guess is I think they thought that a mosquito's like needle, right, couldn't actually penetrate the skin. So I think they thought black people's skin is thicker, but in reality, I mean, this just this goes back to the intro with the how skin color developed. Because when people that come from areas that have um, like higher mosquito populations have like natural immunities to some diseases like that, not not thicker skin, but right, um, 
Uh, I'm not sure about for yellow fever what kind of natural immunity would would exist, but like for malaria, like people that have sickle cell and anemia, like sickle cell disease, mm-hmm. which I think actually does tend to affect black people more than whites just they sure. tends to yeah but the parasite that causes malaria cannot use the blood cell to um, reproduce but i think it's also important to point out here too that these white people who went over to africa or african countries had never been exposed to these diseases and these types of mosquitoes yes. i mean mosquitoes are yes. different too per continent and mm-hmm. country and whatnot and if so, and if you're a white person back then inundated with bullshit about um about white superiority then you're gonna you're gonna you're and and, you know 1793 there wasn't a lot of medical science developed up to that point right so that i I mean that was even that would have been before the origin of species so there would have been no no idea of um, no concept of like natural selection or adaptation to an environment so there's no way they could have thought like I mean that's not to excuse their ignorance their their behavior yeah. and how they viewed black people it's just it's just I I can see I can see I mean in 1793 didn't let I me mean, weren't they still weren't they still like putting leeches on on people for Probably. things yeah I just but I also <laughs> it makes me think or wonder like how did nobody come to that realization like obviously we're entering a completely different country from ours you know thousands of miles away yeah we're going to be exposed to things that we don't have back in the u.s i don't think they knew about germs then probably not but i mean they were aware of diseases they were aware of sicknesses oh but if they're not aware of oh i see where you're getting and like yeah how can you be aware of a disease that you don't know know exists well you can't be but i mean i guess i guess what i'm trying to get at is that you would think that there would be some sort of precaution because they're going to they're going into an environment that they're not familiar with. Right. So whether you're aware of uh, germs or bacteria, whatever the case may be, you would at least think that they would try to uphold some sort of um, hygiene standard. But I, I guess maybe I'm giving these people way too much credit. I, don't I, know. I think so. I don't think there was any, I just don't think there was any like concept. I of mean, that stuff like you said, thing. it was 1793. Yeah. So what can you yeah. expect from people back then? Exactly. Not a whole lot, apparently. And then just lastly, this wouldn't be an episode on um, U.S. healthcare and how it treats black patients without at least mentioning the Heckler report, which I think I will probably end up doing either a, like a mini episode or a f- or a full episode on so the heckler report was a report um written uh to mary m heckler who was a republican politician from massachusetts who served on the united states house of representatives for eight terms from 1967 to 1983 and was later the secretary of health and human services and the ambassador to Ireland under President Ronald Reagan. That information comes from C-SPAN. But the report that was written uh, in 1985 is called um, Black and Minority Health. And my understanding is that this was the first report that really put these issues on the map in the United States. So this report pointed out that very large discrepancies in infant mortality amongst um, black patients versus whites. 
and the different, quite different healthcare outcomes that um, blacks face versus whites as well in healthcare settings. For the like fifth time, this will also be on in the episode description. It's it's a it's a pretty big report, and I, I I didn't have time on this one because this has always already been pretty long to really go through this report and look at in detail. So that's our episode. Sian, I'm I'm really glad you could join me on this. Yeah, um, it's well, not all of it was fun, but it was it was really fun to um be here and discuss partake yeah Yeah. partake in everything in doing the research for this episode and producing it and editing it i've been really thinking about what it is exactly that is going on here when we share these stories and statistics with you and i think the bottom line is black patients are being ignored They're being ignored on a micro level in the clinic where we don't uh, listen to them And they're being ignored on a macro level where black infant mortality is significantly higher than the infant mortality of other races in this country. This podcast is supposed to be about the motivating forces behind those in healthcare. We've explored that with Dr. Farber, Dr. Morell, Dr. Vinogradov, and Dr. Lee so far. And in this episode, I haven't really focused on one physician that relates to this particular issue. But what we need to do as practitioners is to look in on ourselves and maybe not necessarily our motivations, but be aware that these discrepancies uh, exist for black patients. And this is the reality that they are living in when they seek health care. And that we should be a force for change in this area and how we interact with those patients and how we can make their lives a lot better when we provide care. One thing I want to make very clear is I don't mean to say that every single time a black patient seeks health care that their outcome is going to be bad. There is a book by Dr. Jerome Groupman called How Doctors Think, where Dr. Groupman describes many different patient interactions that he's had in his career, one of which was during his residency, where a black patient who I believe was a mail carrier um, ended up having some kind of severe internal bleed. And fortunately for Dr. Groupman, who was caring for this patient as a resident, the attending was there to assist him. And they identified that this patient needed to go to a cardiothoracic surgeon immediately. Dr. Groupman describes this patient suddenly sitting up in bed, grabbing his chest, and having labored breathing. They didn't immediately think that he was faking it. They listened to the patient, they listened to the patient's body, and they got him the care that he needed. Furthermore, just because you're not black doesn't mean you're going to have a great healthcare outcome. Personally, my family had a horrific healthcare outcome last year. And that happened to my daughter, who is part Brazilian, but wouldn't be considered black or African-American. Furthermore, we've had plenty of nurses say things to us that they probably should have thought about before saying it, or just things that were just dismissive. So I don't think anybody is really immune to having a bad experience in a hospital or a clinic or any healthcare setting. But what I've laid out before you is a pattern that 
consistently happens to one particular demographic in this country. I want to go back to the Heckler Report and read part of it to you. According to the Heckler Report, quote, despite the unprecedented explosion in scientific knowledge and the phenomenal capacity of medicine to diagnose, treat, and cure disease, Blacks, Hispanics, Native Americans, and those of Asian slash Pacific Islander heritage have not benefited fully or equitably from the fruits of scientific or from those systems responsible for translating and using health science technology. With full cognizant of this tragic dilemma in the United States, the Secretary of Health and Human Services, Margaret Heckler, established the Task Force on Black and Minority Health. Since the turn of the century, the overall health status of all Americans has improved greatly. In 1900, the life expectancy of the United States population at birth was 47.3 years. For blacks, it was much lower, 33 years. In little more than three generations, remarkable changes have occurred in healthcare and biomedical research. As pointed out by the Surgeon General in the 1979 report, Healthy People, the leading causes of death in 1900 were influenza, pneumonia, diphtheria, tuberculosis, and gastrointestinal infections. In the first half of the century, improved sanitation, better nutrition, and immunizations brought a drastic decline in infectious disease. Today, these diseases cause a relatively small percentage of deaths compared to 1900. Knowledge about life processes and health and disease is being acquired at an incredible pace. Because of one spectacular achievement after another, it is predicted that many of the diseases not now curable will be controlled by the year 2000. This, quote, biological revolution, end quote, has placed into the hands of health professionals effective medications, new and complex diagnostic instruments, and treatment modalities not dreamed of in 1900. Since the 1960s, the United States population population has experienced a steady decline in the overall death rate for all causes. Remarkable progress in understanding the, the causes and risks for developing diseases such as heart disease and cancer have important implications for the health of all Americans. The decline in cardiovascular disease mortality from 1968 to 1978 alone improved overall life expectancy by 1.6 years. Advances in the long-term management of chronic diseases mean that conditions such as hypertension and diabetes no longer necessarily lead to premature death and disability. Concomitantly, advances in social and behavioral sciences, research, and methodology have elucidated relationships among biological, behavioral, and social factors that affect health and illness. The link among these factors is crucial in understanding the behavioral underpinnings of health, identifying effective strategies for disease prevention, maintaining treatment regimens, and suggesting ways to change behavior for more healthful living habits. Although tremendous strides have been made in improving the health and longevity of the American people, statistical trends show a persistent, distressing disparity in key health indicators among certain subgroups of the population. In 1983, life expectancy reached a new high of 75.2 years for whites and 69.6 years for blacks, a gap of 5.6 years. Nevertheless, blacks today have a life expectancy already reached by whites in the early 1950s, or a lag of about 30 years. Infant mortality rates have fallen steadily for several decades for both blacks and whites. In 1960, blacks suffered 44.3 infant deaths per every thousand 
live births, roughly twice the rate for whites, 22.9. Moreover, in 1981, blacks suffered 20 infant deaths per thousand live births, still twice the white level of 10.5, but similar to the white rate of 1960. The Task Force on Black and Minority Health was thus conceived in response to a national paradox of phenomenal scientific achievement and steady improvement in overall health status, while at the same time persistent significant health inequalities exist for minority Americans. As the task force came into being in April 1964, it was evident that to bring the health of minorities to the level of all Americans, efforts of monumental proportions were needed. End quote. Again, this is a report that was produced in 1985. Now that we are at the end of the episode, if you're still not convinced that we have a problem with how we view and treat black people in the United States, consider this. Every time the media exposes the killing of an unarmed black person by the police, there are always questions about what the victim was doing up to the shooting and why they were doing it. We hear that they, quote, looked suspicious, were in the wrong place at the wrong time, didn't follow the officer's directions, or resisted arrest, end quote. But going to the emergency room or laying in a hospital bed does not require a sick black patient to prove innocence or illness. They are at their most vulnerable and they need your help. Practitioners must practice medicine, not prosecute their patients, because your black patients aren't just unarmed, they're unwell. Thanks so much for listening to this episode. And again, special thanks to my wife, Siona, for joining me on this one. Please, I'd love to hear from you guys. Any feedback, any suggestions, any uh, constructive criticism that you have, I want to hear it. Uh, you can email me at cttthpodcast at gmail.com. I'm on Facebook at cttthehead. And I'm also on Instagram. Would love to hear from you guys. And again, thank you for listening to this. I know it was a tough one. Next episode is my 10th episode, so I'm just going to give an overview of um, where the show started and where we are now, and then after that, we're going to continue with this uh, theme, and we're going to explore the Tuskegee experiments. Thanks, guys. Stay healthy out there. Sienna, watch your mouth. You are. This is a family-friendly show. <laughs> well, I've said. Okay. I'm gonna bleep. I'm gonna bleep all that out. Oh, you're gonna all the swear words I said. Yeah. Why not? I mean, why? Because I feel like it. It's my podcast. Oh, because I can bleep it out. No, what if your dad listens to this? Then he can know I said fucking bullshit. Oh my gosh. What? <laughs> you're crazy. <sighs> I'm a grown-ass adult. I can use whatever words I want. I can leave ass in. And you're going to leave ass? Or if you've said ass, but fucking shit, I'm going to do that. But then it makes me sound like I swear like a sailor. And you said I could swear. <laughs> I did? Yes. Well, okay. We're I'll recording. Make, I'll make the... You said I could swear. I'll make the executive decision then.
If I did, if I said that, I, I got to hold it to my. Yeah, you, know. you did when we were recording. Maybe that was because it wasn't like the real version, but you said I could swear. I, I did. And. Oh, God.